Wasted Pretty. And I'm Liz Fulmer, a local musician who partnered with Jamie for the show Come As You Are. Wasted Pretty is a novel set in Pittsburgh in 1992 about a girl whose body is changing and that changes how the world around her deals with her, even though she hasn't had any internal changes to go along with her external changes. And so it's I've talked about it as a Me Too novel before there was Me Too language. And uh, there it is. It is fiction. It is a novel. It is made up. Uh, but I have also written a nonfiction piece about the sort of the kernel at the center of this book that was true that became fictionalized, which is when I was 16 years old and working at a record store in Pittsburgh, which actually didn't sell record. It 
sold CDs, but we always called it a record store because I'm arrested, developed in 1987. Um, I was sexually harassed by a professional athlete. And so I have written nonfiction about that. So Liz and I can uh, be at events that talk about sexual assault, sexual harassment, but the book is also sex positive, um, where the main character is learning to deal with her own sexuality and exploring it with people who are both um, positive and people who aren't necessarily. I think part of, you just spoke to what I think is really powerful about the book. It's not a this or that, or uh, uh, you had this one bad experience and now we need to be completely against sex or attraction or anything like that, but it's it's a really great piece that holds together both of these things. And there is that tension between the two because you can't really land anywhere at any given moment. It's, it's shifting based on the rooms you're in, the people you're surrounded by. And so to sort of put all that together and say that this is, you know, this is a, a, an authentic sort of way that you're going to have to move through the world um, and not just a, you don't tie things up neatly, like, that I think is really necessary because we're especially now in this really polarized kind of binary driven world where we have to land somewhere and stick our flag there and can't move. Um, but to be able to hold both. Well, and I think I, for those of you who know my publication journey, I tried to find an agent. I obviously wanted to be with a big five publisher because that's how you get noticed and get your book out there. And I think there were things about this book working against it. One was the 1992 setting because agents don't like young adult fiction written before young adults were actually born, uh, which I understand. But also, I can't imagine the ending of this book getting past a big five editor. I think there would have been pressure to sew things up a little bit more neatly. And I had no um, desire to do that. And so I, the book, uh, I did, I have a, I'm with a small press out of Texas. I had complete creative control and I was able to not sew things up. And I, mm-hmm. because life doesn't get sewn up like that, um, and I am working on a sequel, but I can promise you that things will not be sewn up just because there's another book. So if you like neat, happy endings, don't read your book. Nope. Nope. But it is young adult fiction. There are a lot of adults who are reading this book. Yes. Yes. It's set in 1992, so there is that nostalgia factor. Adults can read it and think, what's wrong with this girl? And then realize, oh, yeah, I'm mad because that's what I was doing when I was 16. And I wish I hadn't. I wish someone had told me earlier. And So I, it's a great book for teens and parents to read together. I've done book groups where teens who have read it and their parents who have read it are in the room yelling at each other about who's a good guy and who's a bad guy mm-hmm. and what, you know, whose motivation was what. Those conversations are amazing. So I'm always available to do book groups with adults adults or with teens. Um, I love doing it when the teens and the adults are together. And the show took music that was mentioned or referenced or evocative of the era in which the book was set. Liz and Friends played those and sang those songs, and I read selections from the book. So the book is doing well. The book is doing well. It's being reviewed well by people who read it. What compelled you to write about that particular place and that particular time? And then the follow-up question will be, so you can think about this, why would you sign on to do a thing about a time period and a place that I imagine... You were too. I was tiny. Yeah, it holds no real meaning for you. So that'll be... so. I was 16 in 1992 in Pittsburgh, so that's the easy answer. Mm -hmm. But to expand on that, I would say 
that authenticity in my writing is really important to me. I write nonfiction as well as fiction. Uh, but regardless of what I'm working on, my aim is to be true to the emotions and um, the, in this case, the setting. I mean, I really wanted to get the setting right. I didn't want to be thinking a lot about, well, would this happen? And how would this happen? And how would someone respond to this? So I went to a place where I was fully comfortable with how things were. I have a very strong memory. I have lots of notebooks from that era that I could draw on. And I wanted to tell the story about a girl who felt isolated. And I think today with social media and cell phones and immediate connectivity, it's easy to feel like you're not isolated and, and yet easy to still be isolated. Uh, but for the narrative, I stripped away all of those options so that she could really feel alone in her experience and explore what what that's like. Why music? Why pair words and music? How did that idea come to fruition? And um, what role does music play in this novel? So in the novel, the main character is 16 years old and works at her father's radio station. And she is interested in a boy in a band. So there's music on lots of levels in the actual plot and setting and narrative of the story. But for me, um, as I have said, widely now, my musical taste stopped evolving in 1987. The arrested development of musical taste? The arrested development of musical taste. I'm very proud of it. I spent years being embarrassed by it. Do you know uh, that there's music that has been uh, recorded and published since 1987? I mean, I'm aware of that people, fact. People even like it? I'm, my husband is a voracious acquirer of new things to listen to. I find that exhausting when you already know what you like. What's the point? That's a very mature approach. <laughs> an approach worthy of an artist. <laughs> okay, so these are songs that are pre-1987 then? They are They are 1992 and before with okay. a heavy influence from the late 80s. So uh, name some songs and bands that influenced you at the time and that made their way into the book in either in spirit or in reality. The Cure, very heavy influence. The Smiths, Billy Bragg. There is a strong nod to Pat Benatar, which cannot be um, ignored. Uh, so the people I was listening to then tend to be late new wave, early grunge. So Nirvana and Courtney Love slash Hole as well. Is there a common thread that binds these two? people, these musicians, these artists together for you, or are they just people who are out at the time? Um, who are what was that line you used, Liz, about my angst? and uh, Angst? Um, that board, it's borders on not being pretty, or like it's an, there's an ugliness to it? Maybe we talked about that yes. before? Yeah, so the answer is angst, and Liz can talk a lot more about how the music is, uh, the through line would be angst. So you were two in 1992, mm -hmm. but... You have a connection to this music somehow, and we're moved by it, and we're also moved by the novel itself. So talk about how you became part of this project and why you chose to play music of this genre, even though it doesn't really fit into your life in any way. So there are various reasons I got connected to the project. First of all, anytime you sit down to do an artistic kind of project, um, I take into consideration the art of the project itself, but also who I'm collaborating with. So when Jamie Beth asked me to be involved in this, I hadn't yet read the book and had no idea what that would look like. 
But in terms of a collaborator, Jamie kind of just like embodied all the things I look for in someone I work with, you know, creativity and professionalism and uh, fun and sort of um, with a good imagination. So that's why I initially got connected. Um, and then I read the book and loved the book and saw myself in it. And um, the music that was named in the book, even though I wasn't really alive when it was really popular, um, I think there's a reason that Jamie's musical tastes have sort of stayed stuck in that period because that music is, I mean, transcendent is kind of a lofty word, but I think that it continues to have meaning for people. So, Jamie, you're not alone in, <laughs> in having that kind of musical taste. So I grew up still listening to that music, too. Um, I heard it in, Mary, in a different way, probably, but um, it was still really meaningful to me. And actually, the first band that I was ever a part of was essentially a Nirvana cover band, um, where I was the drummer because uh, the lead singer was a boy that I was just head over heels for. Hmm. And he needed a drummer, and I learned how to play drums. Wow. Yeah, so <laughs> so the beat for Smells Like Teen Spirit was the first beat I ever learned how to play. Um, yeah, so this music has a way of sort of just uh, sticking around um, and was really meaningful to me. So to be able to then bring my own artistic, you know, perspective to this music and to sort of reimagine how it could be presented was really a fun challenge. And that speaks to what Jamie was talking about with angst. There are musical um, sort of functions that make the songs have that angst just in them, in the chord progression, in the way the melody fits in with the chords, in the way that the lyrics sort of draw some of that out too. So, and I tend to lean towards, um, in the musical realm, I tend to always gravitate towards music that is sad or angsty or longing or pining in some way and that just shows up in so much of the music that we ended up doing for the show. What role does the music play in the book when you read it and you hear the song sort of in your head how does it fit the scenes that you're reading the moods of the scenes that you're reading um, and the characters that are coming alive in your head how do those songs fill the room? I think like misery likes company and those songs kind of provided company when you're dealing with those feelings of like longing for somebody or just suddenly realizing that you're attracted in that kind of like full-bodied, fully emotional way um, and, and people, your friends, don't totally get it, music, I think, kind of just can wash over you and fill in those those disconnects between you and other people. Is this it's, why I used to make mixtapes for girls I liked? Yes, exactly, because you need music to say things that you can't say yourself or that your friends can't I can't totally explain this to you but just listen to this song exactly it's all in this song just listen to this song that's why I started writing music was you know because you manipulate not just words but sound and um, you know frequency and intensity and tempo and all these things that just kind of speak to an emotion more than any straight dialogue or straight conversation will do which is why I think it was so powerful to connect the reading from the book with the music because it was able to touch on all of those different mediums of communication Music in the book, how does it serve? How does it serve you as while you were writing it? So I was given writing advice uh, in one of the early stages of this book that not to use music as shorthand, not to let some a character's musical taste stand in for an actual description of who they are. Uh, I think I was probably guilty of that in the first draft a lot, and certainly in the first draft, 
there were more lyrics from songs and mentions of songs, which you can't really do legally, or it's much more complicated to do than one would like. So as I was stripping the songs or the actual lyrics out of the book for legal reasons, I was making sure that I was still able to then replace those sort of the lyrics, which became placeholders for the emotions that I was trying to convey. But in my head, those songs are still playing in those scenes. And so we were able to actually make that happen in a live show in a way you can't really do in the book, both for legal reasons and because it doesn't work as well. Are you in agreement with Liz that the music evokes angst and longing and sadness and a wish to be understood and a craving for connection? Or does it do something else for you? I'm absolutely in agreement, although Liz knows I don't really understand music in the way that she does. So I can say, I like this. But you know how it makes you feel. I know how it makes me feel, but I don't know why. So when Liz says chord progressions, and I just nod my head and smile and hope she doesn't notice that I don't really know what that means. Um, So yes, I mean, obviously it fills the room, right? It fills your head. There, I have playlists that I listen to when I'm writing. I have friends who their whole technique is to create a playlist and write a chapter that matches each song. So they find a song that has that feel that they want for that chapter, and then they follow the song list. No one may ever know what those song lists are, although half my friends are using Taylor Swift. But I'm just I'll put that out there. <laughs> young adult writers trend young, and Taylor Swift has her finger on those those sort of sweeping emotions um so i know people that just make (laughs) taylor swift playlists and then write novels that follow them i just can't get on board with taylor swift being the kurt cobain of the 20 teens it just doesn't vibe for me (laughs) well sorry all you well zers out there well it just doesn't do it for me to be fair and liz and i have talked about this and not to sound super old, but they don't make music like they used to. And and I and I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, and in fact, to myself, because Liz was explaining to me how the music of today, like the pop music of today, is different than the songs we were working with in the late '80s and early '90s. I don't understand from a music theory point of view, but I definitely get that what my daughter listens to, what's playing on top forty does not have that angst. It might have longing. I hear a lot of longing. But I it's don't like feel full angst. longing. It's but like- I also, to be fair, and I, I mean, I really want to shout out Billy Bragg right now. These were political songwriters also. So Michelle Schacht, who has since sadly gone off the deep end, but she was she was singing about social justice issues in a pop venue. Um, Billy Bragg is sort of 50-50 union sing-along songs and unrequited love. And that's what I was listening to. I was listening to both of those things. My daughter is not. That's not what's on the radio right now.
legs is wrong to wish on space hardware. I wish, I wish, I wish yeah. I don't want to change the world. I'm not looking for a new way. I'm just looking for another girl. I don't want to familiar with Billy Bragg after working with Jamie. Like I had never even heard of him before. And please tell me your impressions. My impressions? Um, I, I like he... <laughs> I would love to know what Sam thinks. I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. But first, I want to hear what you think. Um, the, what I've heard, I've liked. Um, I get as much enjoyment l- like reading his lyrics uh-huh. as I do listening to him sing. So I don't necessarily need it to be sung. Um, not by him for sure not by him yeah and so that's that is something that as like a female vocalist Mm -hmm. um, many of us kind of get on our soapboxes about this because um, there are different expectations for what a female vocalist should be able to do that are not held for for male vocalists you are more than welcome to barely hit the note or not hit the note at all so the fact that like Leonard Cohen had a career singing his own stuff is abominable to me Great writer. Should, he is dead, should, and you should not speak ill of Leonard Cohen. Never have been led anywhere near a microphone. Um, and there are a number of examples like this. Like, I don't even think that Neil Young is that good of a singer. There's a lot of whining and screeching involved. You and, sound like my mother. I, I want to agree with you. I, I hear my wife's voice in my head, though, and actually was just this week talking about Leonard Cohen's voice and how I can't quite groove with it. And as I was about to say that, I was stopped um, before I could, you know, blaspheme in such a way. So, so this is way, way off the beaten path here, <laughs> but right. I, I just need to follow this to its logical conclusion, if right. there is one, which is just like this speaks to, again, patriarchy, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's like you have the, the, the uh, analog in my mind is uh, Hollywood and the entertainment industry and how you can have any old schleppy looking guy mm-hmm. playing a lead role, even if he can't act. I'm looking at you, Bruce Willis, for example. That's right. I said it. Um, he can die hard. But yeah. I care. He's also like a super Republican, so he can, you know. Oh, well, he that's can, problematic. He can stick it. But like Bruce Willis is not an attractive person, I don't think. Not a good actor, as my father would say. His acting ranges from A to B. Mm. 
Uh, and, and yet he's getting all these roles and playing people much younger than him. They give him hair pieces and whatever else. You would not, you don't see, still don't see women who are given the opportunity to kind of like, okay, you're 55, but you're going to play a 40 year old or a 35 year old. And, you know, you don't meet these like standards of, of attractiveness for the industry, but that's okay because you're who you are. And so we're just going to throw you in this role in this, in this blockbuster film you don't see that right. is it sort of a similar kind of thing in, in music yeah well and i was going to actually bring up kurt cobain because he was fighting a lot against sort of the pop industry that was trying to create a branding out of him that he was really reluctant to be a part of and i think so that's i think how he speaks into this conversation he, today, but, uh, he uh, i you know i don't know why i'm defensive of kurt cobain but no, I, I so see. i'm gonna step in here and say everyone needs to watch the behind the scenes nirvana unplugged special i think mtv released it so are we are we, are we getting subsidized by mtv now no so you can i think you can stream you know the mtv unplugged nirvana mm-hmm. but then there's this special that talks about how the industry was like he can't carry it off he can't no one's gonna watch this he can't sing it's not the music isn't gonna sound good unplugged mm-hmm. But it does. But it so does. In fact, I like it better. I only listen to it acoustic. That's that's like the dirty little secret for me, which is like, oh, grunge girl, blah, blah, blah. But like, really, I prefer it all acoustic. I can understand how people who were, you know, our age at the time were into Kurt Cobain, regardless of the fact that he couldn't sing. Um, I recently had occasion to listen to In Utero in full. It's cacophonous. It's screechy, it's throaty, it's metal, and other things that I don't know the names of. Screamo, um, or right? There is. Yeah, and there's like death metal and all those. It's not any of those things, but it has elements of all of those things. It evokes emotion, but it isn't like melodious. Well, it doesn't let you off the hook. And I mean, I think that's what one of the things that Liz was explaining to me when I was complaining about the music my daughter listens to. And I know, I knew this, but it's, um, everything is auto-tuned now. So if I think back to the musicians and the the bands that you mentioned, and I'm thinking back now to the concert itself, not a lot of women represented. Male heavy, Mm -hmm. 100%. And and the music I was listening to at 16 was male heavy, and the music Alice is listening to is male heavy. So that's an industry thing? And I think that's a comment on... This idea, as this Lindy West quote that I keep going back to, about being shaped by cultural influences that actually hated us. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Robert Smith of The Cure hated women. I, I don't. I mean, maybe someone can prove me wrong. I think he's been married to the same woman for a really long time, unless I'm behind the times on that as well. But I would say that women were not front and center um, in what was shaping me. That said, I was listening to the Indigo Girls. I was listening to Ani DeFranco. I was listening to Michelle Schacht. I was listening to Suzanne Vega, Sarah McLaughlin. Um, the whole um, Lilith Fair thing was influential on me as a person, but and in the bit in the book, the band that Alice is following is fronted by a woman, as was the band that I was friends with when I was a teenager. There are both things going on, but the bands I was listening to then were very male heavy, and which is why, specifically, I wanted to partner with Liz because she is an awesome human being, but also because I wanted um, the music to have that female take on it. And I think Liz has some really interesting things to say about how the lyrics sound. Mm. 
if you're singing them as a man versus if you're singing them as a woman. To like bring a female voice and a female perspective to these songs that were originally penned and presented by men, um, there was a sense of empowerment in that. Um, there was a sense of fun in being able to sing the notes beautifully um, and to bring that intentional beauty to what I think was constructed to be a little bit more dissonant to listen to. Um, and I think with the dissonance already built into the structure of the song, having a beautiful voice or a beautiful melody really brought out with that, I think created just a really cool tension. So I, we've heard from people that they understood the lyrics much differently hearing them sung by a, a woman. And well, I can actually um, understand them. Well, and that's, Com- that's part of it too, them, like, right. Words. Right, and I don't get what that's about. Like, why would you pen a beautiful lyric and then make it so unintelligible that no one's actually understanding what you're saying? Because you hate yourself and or you're you embarrassed, or yeah. So there's something also I think really bold and brave about like claiming these words. Mm-hmm. And even though I didn't write them, I think when you're singing them, there's always a piece of you that has to buy into what you're saying if it's going to be presented well.
makes me smile. I found it hard. It's hard to find a well, whatever. How did you become a musician, and what were your influences when you were, let's say, 17, 18? Um, <clears throat> I became a musician because it was the way that I knew how to express myself. So mm -hmm. I, I learned how to pick up instruments, and I would just sort of, you know, throw myself into them and began. And I was also always kind of just a writer, unrelated to music, and then I found a way to pair the two together. And really, I would like credit my teachers for sort of noticing a, a, a skill and drawing that out of me. So... Liz Carney, you know, she's great. Um, anyway, and uh, and my dad was also the person that anytime I had even a snippet of a song that I was working on, I'd play it for him, and he'd say, play it again, play it again. Like, it wasn't like, I don't have time for this, but it was like he was feeding this creativity. Um, was he and, a musician or just an appreciator? No, he, he actually has a really wonderful voice. He wouldn't say that, but he does. Um, but, yeah, loves, he'll appreciate the crap out of music. Um and we would do it together. I'd stop by his house and play a song that I just found. I think it was Paramore, actually, because um, that lead singer has like an act, like a stellar voice. And so we would just blare it and kind of, you know, both of us are big crybabies and we'd tear up together, and it was all that. So I guess at that time I was listening a lot to um, Sarah Bareilles um, and Brandy Carlile, mm. the Dixie Chicks. Really love the Dixie. My Chicks. father loves Brandy Carlile. She well, she's amazing. Like she's just. Lyrically, musically, as a performer, uh, what she stands for, like, she's just an all-around, you know, she's the whole package. Um, and then also was really into, like, Nirvana at the same time and really into, um, I guess, brand new for a bit. There's some brand new tracks that are just, you know, speak to my soul. Um, Dave Matthews Band, actually. Really big Dave Matthews fan. Like, I've seen him multiple times in concert, but I feel very like every brave. time I say You're that, very... I get attacked for it. I'm so, not going to attack you. So... You're very brave to admit that. I had my Dave Matthews stage. I think we all do. Answer, I've, answer I've seen him live. Yeah. I think that's funny yeah. that you say yeah. that about Dave Matthews, because I think what you were about to needle me on with the Smiths is my senior year of high school, I had a pull quote from an article that was blown up in my locker, and it was from Morrissey, the lead singer of the Smiths, and it said, I feel bad for my fans because every time they admit it, they immediately have to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. And in 1992, that was more a comment on musical taste than it was on 
him as a person. And 25 years later, I've had to stop listening to him because I cannot. I mean, I, the Smiths, I have been convinced by friends that it's okay to listen to the Smiths because they all hate him too. So he's like an unfortunate, he's an unfortunate. It's self-delusion. It might be self-delusion, but I can't let go of the Smiths. I absolutely can't. I mean, you can take away my social activist card if you must. But I'm going I can't to. As soon as this is done, I'm, I'm taking The Smiths, <laughs> Morrissey, I can let go of. I mean, there are a couple songs that I really miss. Like? I, I can't because then I start singing them and the only way I can get them out of my head is to listen to them. So I have to pretend that they don't exist. All right. That's fair. Um, but the Smiths, I, I can't let go of. And and they they made that music, not him. They. And okay. Johnny Marr is not an asshole. So. Good times for a change. See the love I've had to make a good man turn back. So. back to the book okay. you said you saw yourself in the book mm-hmm. and that drew to this project as well mm-hmm. so so I saw myself in the book because Alice's experience of, of falling hard for somebody and sort of that forbiddenness of it as well because of the age difference I'm not giving any spoilers away um, <clears throat> and just sort of this kind of coming into her own as somebody who's developing and be, kind of, I guess, blossoming in a way that the world is now recognizing her. Like, I kind of experienced a bit of that. And remember when I was first getting certain attention, I was, like, thrilled by it. Um, and then realized very quickly that that's not necessarily the attention that you want or makes you feel good or mm-hmm. makes you feel even pretty. It just mm-hmm. makes you feel looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was drawn to that. And, and especially because of her, like, longing for this character, um, I am... A longer, <laughs> uh, like, and um, you know, I was kind of discovering my sexual orientation in high school, and so that was coupled to there was that forbidden sort of aspect because the person that I was really drawn to was somebody that I guess I quote unquote shouldn't have been drawn to too. 
So, and when you have to bottle all that in, it just becomes like infinitely more dramatic and more important and more precious. Were these societal restrictions, parental restrictions? A lot of my own, actually. Um, And a lot of just curiosity because there's no like manual for how to move through that process of figuring out how you identify. And and I guess some societal, some familial, um, but not nothing like many people have experienced in terms of like family rejection. Like I wasn't rejected by really anybody and I am grateful for that. But Anyway, so, um, yeah, I, and I, I've told Jamie this before, but I was annoyed with Alice several times for being so hung up on this guy. And then I had to check myself because I was seeing myself in that and realized that I did all those same things. And I annoyed everybody else more than Alice annoys the people in her life because that's all I could talk about. You know, when you love something and that person's name just keeps showing up, like it's written on your forehead. I know. Or in your locket, like it was in my case. And, um, <laughs> so, yeah. Right now, my best friend from seventh grade is rolling her eyes so hard. So, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you going to do yeah. this again? We so want to. We I totally mean, want to. Liz put in a lot of work. The guys that she played with put in a lot of work. And now that the pieces have been orchestrated, is, no, is that the right word? Yeah. That, that we could replicate this very easily. And we've also talked about not just using the book, but there's other writing that I do. And so doing a completely different night based around another issue. And so I think, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're for hire. Mm. We're for hire. <laughs> uh, I, I do think that there's something unique about talking about an issue that needs to be talked about and doing it in a way that somehow brings you like right into it. But sideways. But side, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like when Arthur Miller wrote The Crucible and was really writing about the House on American activities. Really? I had no idea that that was... (laughs) But said it in, you know, the Salem Witch Trials. And like Liz said, I mean, you're right there. You, I mean, it is an, it feels immediate, even though it's set in the past, but you're right there because it's talking about something that is actually happening. So fiction, playwriting, songwriting can do that in a way and can be an entree into talking about really difficult issues without having, you know, none of the teens in the room at that last book group said, oh, when this happened to me, but they would say, I was worried about Alice when this happened. And so that's an, that's a way to get into the conversation. I had a, a friend who sent me a picture of her 13-year-old reading the book. And I was like, oh, hey, have you read it first? And she goes, no, it came in the mail and she took it right out. I couldn't get to it. And I said, well, do you, do you maybe want to read it first? And she said, actually, she's told me twice now that there are things in here she wants to talk to me about and that I need to read it. And I thought, wow. okay, number one, you have an amazing relationship with your kid. But number two, that's exactly what this book can be used for is this bridging of, hey, I want to talk about what happened to Alice here without actually talking about what happened to me. That's what's amazing about teenagers. The, this, like, because there are moments where Alice and Meredith are talking and, like, in that totally like 13 year old kind of way obviously they're older than that but there's like sort of this switching back and forth between being like still really young and childish and silly and then dealing with like very adult things and so I think having a 13 year old who's probably just a little bit on the younger side to be reading it mm-hmm. she's still going to be able to identify with some of how you know Alice's life because at 16 or 17 you're still not you're not divorced from the you you were a couple of years before right so which, yeah, which 
makes it also very hard to parent too. Right. Because sometimes you think you're you've got a child you're working with and other times you're like blown away by insight and what that kid is talking about and how they're moving through it. So And also I one of the one of the points of the book and one of the points of the essay that I wrote about what actually happened to me is that teens don't get to decide when they are seen as adults. Mm. And that I was not prepared for that to happen and I remember I'm still not. <laughs> I remember I'm vividly, an adult. <laughs> like, I remember vividly. I mean, I was that Meredith character of like, I'm going to talk about sex like it's no big deal. Okay, but I'm not actually having it. And like when someone starts talking to me about it, then I don't know what I'm talking about. And so it's this like false bravado to mm. cover the real innocence. But then all of a sudden it's actually happening for real, whether it's meaning sex is happening for real or people are looking at you as a sexual object for real. You don't determine when that that switch flips. And so I think, yeah, a 13 year old, the three of us here, parents, adults cringed when I said the 13 year old pulled it out of the mail. But the fact is those 13 year olds, if, if we can help them prepare for when that switch will flip, we're all better off. Hi. How are you? Good. I heard you didn't like the refrigerator sound. Uh, no room is perfect. 